Hello and welcome to the Leading Through Uncertainty podcast. I'm Jude Jennison, host of this podcast and founder of Leaders by Nature, a leadership and team development company. I believe that leadership is about who we are being as much as what we are doing and that when we combine our brilliant minds with the emotional engagement from the heart, we can solve all of the world's problems. In this podcast, I interview leaders on their experiences of disruptive change and ask them how leaders can position themselves for the future. Find out what this week's leader has to say. Anne Shaw is the Executive Director for Transport for the West Midlands. She talks about the challenge of managing a variety of stakeholder groups, from users to transport providers, the government, as well as her own team. And she explains that change can be either positive or negative for people by how well we engage and include them in the process and decision making. Anne recognises the need to balance the needs and desires of everyone, however challenging that might be, but to balance that with a primary focus on the end users who rely on the transport services to ensure they're able to access health, jobs, school and other daily activities. Have a listen. Hi Anne, thanks for joining me today. Yeah, thanks Jude for inviting me to do this. Oh, it's a pleasure. I'm really intrigued to know what you're going to uh, to tell us. Um, can you tell us who you are and what you do, please? Yes, yeah, so my name is Anne Shaw and I'm the Executive Director of Transport for West Midlands. So that means I've got responsibility as the Transport Authority for the West Midlands region, making sure that we've got all of our public transport services running uh, with all the multiple operators that operate here, as well as um, uh, undertaking a large number of investments to improve the infrastructure and just to keep people moving in a more sustainable way. Uh, so I manage that whole uh, part of uh, of uh, transport in this region uh, and work with many different partners. Yeah, and I think you know one of the things that instantly comes up for me is I'm guessing you have a lot of different stakeholders with very different requirements and needs. And uh, tell tell me a bit about how do you how do you balance all of that? Well, it, it, it is, uh, we, I do have a lot of stakeholders. So uh, from members of the public who we're here to serve as public servants to businesses who we need to support and enable to flourish uh, by being well connected through public transport to many different other public bodies. So the likes of Network Rail, all the different operators, national highways who look after the motorways, all of our local authorities who've got responsibility for the local road network and then many different politicians. So from the West Midlands, mayor and district to all of the leaders of our councils all of the cabinet members who have an interest in uh, transport and are responsible for those portfolios uh, and then of course uh, all of the different organizations that represent freight and logistics or businesses uh, and so on so we have a huge amount of stakeholders that we work with but first and foremost we're here to support uh, the public as public servants yeah and obviously the i i hear that but that's that's a lot isn't it i mean just so many different stakeholders how do you recognizing that you can't please everybody all of the time how do you balance the different needs of different groups well it's really important for us to make sure that we understand the communities that we're here to serve because different communities have very different requirements um lots of different requirements around uh, the barriers 
uh, to travel and transport that then creates barriers to opportunities you know if you need to get to a local GP you don't own a car how do you get to there um, or um, if you haven't got access to public transport how do you get to school how do you get to a good job so all of the barriers that are, are, are different for different kinds of communities we need to do quite a lot of uh, understanding of that to be able to formulate plans now um, and we, we're here to support those who need us most uh, uh, as well um, and we have all sorts of other targets around decarbonisation, uh, net zero, uh, inclusion, a growing economy with more demands for travel uh, as well. So we, we have to understand all of that and it, it requires a lot of analytics, um, research and information uh, from all of those different communities to make sure that we've got good overview uh, and then uh, we have uh, and are guided by what a statutory transport plan, I guess that sets out the framework uh, and the ambition sort of longer term and then what are all the things that we need to do in order to deliver against that, whether it's investing in new infrastructure or uh, changing the services that we provide with our operators uh, as well. So quite a lot. And I don't do that on my own, of course. I have quite a mm. large number of people yeah. that work with I'm me sure. in Transport for West Midlands um, who are experts in their field. Uh, and my job is to bring them all together so that they all work really well together as well. So I know in um, in 2022, uh, there was the Commonwealth Games and and I'm sure that you were very busy building the plan for that, but also having to respond in the moment as well. How, what are some of the challenges that you faced with the with something like the Commonwealth yeah. Games? Yeah. So, so, I mean, if I tell you that I've been working on Commonwealth Games for six years. Uh, and I was part of the team. Uh, I pulled all the transport stuff together with help from uh, various people on what the transport requirements would be uh, for the bid. We were then successful uh, and I moved from where I was uh, to working here at Transport for West Midlands. And I was told, well, that now you have to deliver it. Um, so there was a huge amount of things to do uh, as part of that. And of course, all of that was pre-COVID uh, as well. Mm. Um, so we had, an, we had a challenge anyway, because we were working on a shorter time frame uh, that the people who were supposed to host it in 2022 um, uh, for, for various reasons uh, were removed uh, from that and Birmingham as the host city was put into place. So we, we had to accelerate a lot of plans and do things uh, within less time than would usually uh, uh, be done. Um, so that was a challenge in itself. Uh, and then we had COVID. Uh, and of course, we all suddenly went to working remotely um, and uh, trying to sort of work with all the different partners. There's a huge uh, number of partners involved in the Commonwealth Games and transport was only one element. Um, but we needed to make sure that we had uh, the right ways of working with other areas that, uh, you know, we needed to interface with and make sure our plans didn't disrupt uh, other stuff uh, and their plans didn't disrupt ours as well. And of course, trying to build a team of, uh, of experts around that to create the capacity to do all of the sort of transport planning um, upfront, all of the design work, uh, and then take that through into operational uh, delivery actually during the Commonwealth Games uh, was quite a challenge during COVID as well. Uh, and then the sort of assumptions that we've made, the, the stuff that we were working to, was it going to be full stadiums? Were there going to be no uh, spectators? Uh, what, what is it that we needed to do uh, around some of that? And of course, there were then multiple changes 
changes with new sports added, different venues uh, were added in uh, as well. Uh, and we had to pull together quite a lot of different partners from all of our transport people that we normally work with and our local authorities, uh, along with all of the games people who, uh, you know, were providing us with all of the information that we needed about how the games was going to operate and how many people would be coming and how many athletes would be participating, where they would be staying and, uh, and what we needed to do uh, around the wider transport network as well so it was a challenge in itself and of course we came down out of subsequent lock lockdowns and we got the team uh, back together we probably one of the first uh, groups of people um, that actually started to locate again back in offices uh, under certain uh, uh, you know uh, safe safe methods etc um, but at the same time uh, within the transport space we were then seeing the transport system uh, working very differently as well we'd seen mm -hmm. a huge drop in demand uh, as we were in the subsequent lockdowns and it took an awful long time to people to be start traveling back again and we still aren't in any sort of settled what we underst understood about how the transport system is used we are still now even today not in a really settled uh, picture around that we've got less people using public transport less people working in offices more people working from home so the whole profile and all the usual sort of modeling that we would do to make assumptions and build uh, what that operational plan was 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 um sort of all thrown up in the air in terms of uh, what what is it we understood um but we, we we worked through all of that with some great people um and constantly changing information uh through that uh, and i think um well certainly people tell me they were very pleased with how the transport ran during the commonwealth games and probably one of the proudest moments for me in my career mm -hmm. to to have built the team that did that and um to enable them to do uh, the brilliant stuff that they did uh, and everybody enjoyed it and our aim was to have no news about transport on the front page it was all about the sport so yeah uh, we achieved that <laughs> i was just thinking that i was thinking in this case no news is very 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 good news isn't it if we absolutely do. yeah we, we no, sat I, in the background and that was that <laughs> and it's an interesting one isn't it because part of um your communication through change is is sometimes about keeping a low profile so that um because that's basically saying everything's running smoothly and sometimes it's about crisis management how do you how do you plan for the two for the being very publicly visible in a crisis and trying to keep things very low key so that there, there is still quite a lot of things uh, publicly that you have to do specifically well commonwealth games is a really good example actually because there were communities that were going to be impacted by mm. the number of visitors uh, and, and it was really important to do that communication with them so that they understood what we were doing, how we were looking to protect them as well. So we we put zones around the venues. Uh, so because a lot of the venues had, um, uh, you know, highly residential, big residential mm -hmm. areas and we needed to protect those people. We wanted the games to be sustainable. We didn't want people to just drive up and park on any side road. That would be totally inconvenient for residents there. So we did a lot of engagement and work uh, with those communities so that they understood what was happening. We understood their needs, uh, which is really important to understand what their needs are and then build that into the plan uh, as well. So we introduced protected areas, residents parking zones. They all had uh, permits so that they could get in and out uh, and we we uh, prevented others from then just parking and clogging up their their the streets that they they live on uh, as well so it's really important to take people with you where you have a direct impact uh, and then of course the people who were then coming to 
enjoy the games and the spectators it was a whole different communication plan um, mm-hmm. so that they knew what services were available so that the sort of behavior influences about traveling sustainably using public transport um, we put temporary park and ride locations in as well so that we could keep and manage the demand uh, and and not clog up the road network around all of those venues uh, and there was a huge amount of effort that went into that side of the communication uh, as well uh, and then with businesses similarly we needed to keep mm-hmm. them informed what was going on so you have to adapt your style dependent on who your audience is um, and the purpose that you need to engage and communicate um, to inform them about all the different changes uh, that would be happening temporary permanent uh, and so on so that they uh, are able to f- fully participate uh, and feel heard and listened to which is probably the, one of the most important things and they can see that we've heard listened and actioned some of their concerns um, and where we can't action all of their concerns you know we're explaining why why we can't do that and these are the reasons so they might still be upset with us but at least they've got a good understanding um, uh, of why we're doing the things that we're doing as well and I think there's a couple of things that you touch on there that that I think are absolutely critical in uncertainty. One is understanding the needs of people and trying to meet them as much as possible. And the the other one is being really honest about why you can't meet their needs. And I think quite often when there's change, those are the two things that we, those are the two things that help engage people or disengage them. But they're often the two things that are missing is that we don't always fully understand people's needs and we don't always communicate as honestly as we we might do what what would your advice be to to other leaders who are either in the middle of change or about to embark on change knowing that that change is going to create some uncertainty and therefore have an impact yeah I I my, my first advice really is, is that it's really important to understand why you need to make that change what is it that's driving uh, the need uh, and then how do you then explain that to the people um, that you're going to be working with uh, on either um, forcing that change upon them or uh, you know making them be part of that change and I think un- unless you can really articulate the purpose of why the change needs to happen um, it's really difficult to bring people along with you uh, on that journey uh, and then the other piece of advice is to really don't think that you know all of the answers uh, I never I never go in knowing all of the answers I surround myself with people who will help and advise and co-create what some of those uh, answers are as part of that so understanding the problem first and foremost before deciding on the solution uh, and that's something that we do quite a lot in in transport actually we don't decide to build a new train line we look at what the problem is and it might be actually be a completely different solution so understanding the problem um, and then articulating that really well listening to the advice of of others communicating where those proposals are taking you to and again continuing to have that dialogue so so people um can input uh, into what is is bringing about that change or how that change is going to be conducted and what that change will ultimately deliver whether it's new ways of working uh, or, or um, uh, you know in my case uh, as well also uh, changing some of our transport infrastructure um, so I think they're the, they're the really important things at the outset uh, and then throughout the whole process I think communication is absolutely key people need mm-hmm. to keep 
uh, you need to keep continually communicating. Uh, what is it that's happening? How are things moving? Um, are we in a bit of a delay? Um, uh, are we having a relook at something? Why are we having a relook at something? Uh, so people know exactly what's happening. Uh, and then uh, when it comes to sort of uh, some of the organisational change that I've been involved with over my career, I think one of the other things is is people will ultimately want to know exactly what is affecting them personally mm -hmm. and what does it mean for me what does it mean for the job I'm doing will it change me um will I still have a job um uh, and so on so you know you need to also connect onto that emotional side uh, of change as well uh, and make sure that you're keeping people uh, up to speed with with what's going on um, and have different ways of communicating around some of that so uh, you know whether it's a, a big global sort of bit of communication or something a bit more personal with certain individuals it's interesting isn't it because when, whenever I always say whenever there's change there's uncertainty and and we're hardwired for certainty. And so whenever there is that uncertainty, instantly people say, what does that mean for me? So something, you know, sometimes as simple as a change in, in a leadership team can create uncertainty and make people question whether they've got a job in the future. And how, how, do, you, how do you build resilience in change? Um, I, I guess it comes with experience. Uh, I, I've, I've, I've been on the, the receiving end of change. Uh, and then how do I choose to engage with that as well? Um, uh, and, uh, you know, you can either view it negatively or positively. Um, but to do that, you need to understand what it's all about. Um, I've always been curious to ask, well, what's this about and how can I help? <laughs> so uh, I, I think that's helped me sort of build that resilience. So rather than just allowing change to happen to me, I've got myself involved and um, uh, been part of designing whatever that changes and supporting whoever was leading that change. Uh, and now as my career has developed, uh, I'm now the person who is um, affecting change um, uh, for various reasons as well. And I've done quite a few big change programmes um, uh, over my career, um, and particularly working in local government, uh, in public sector, you know, a lot of those have been, um, with all of the changes that have been happening in local government over the last 10, 10 15 years, have probably been quite negative experiences for people, um, uh, where uh, things are being downscaled and, uh, you know, some jobs are, are at risk as part of that as well or we've got new requirements uh, for, for new ways of working or uh, even something simple, things like changing offices and where people sit, you know, all of these really yeah. personal things uh, uh, are, are things that we've had to manage. So for me to build my resilience was uh, when I was uh, uh, more junior in my career and being on the receiving end of change, I've chosen to uh, get myself involved and participate. I think that's helped me build resilience, but it's also helped me understand and I'm leading change, how I need to make sure that I give people that opportunity to do the same thing uh, as well. But noting that not everybody wants to get involved. Some people prefer to be told <laughs> what, what they're going to be doing um, uh, uh, as well. Um, uh, and they can either complain about it or accept it. Um, but you also need to work through that, that process with them as well. So uh, everybody's different. We just need to adapt uh, around how we uh, keep everybody involved in whatever change it is that we're leading. Mm. I mean, I'm hearing, I'm hearing that your ability to be curious about change 
has helped you want to get involved rather than the default response, which can often happen when we don't understand change, is to resist it and think it's ridiculous yes. because we don't understand it. What what I'm hearing from you is that instead of dismissing what you don't understand, you've got more curious and that's helped you build resilience. What would your um what would your advice be to leaders who are perhaps more typically resistors to change? Well, uh, I mean, that, that's really interesting, isn't it? Um, so I, I think there's, there's a whole sort of psychology, isn't there, around immunity to change? And what are those barriers that, you know, the influences that you've had over your life, whether it's as a child or, or, or uh, into what you're doing? I'm doing a piece of work personally around that immunity to change as well, to understand the things that I resist uh, in, in my working practices. So I, I am actually finding that quite fascinating. Mm. Um, so, so what uh, are you finding then so far? <laughs> Oh, oh my goodness so it really goes back to uh, some of my childhood experiences I'm I'm the youngest of five siblings um, my uh, four older siblings are very opinionated <laughs> and always know exactly what to do so I've always gone okay <laughs> um, and I think that you know it all started from there where I was like uh, you know well they're telling me I've got to do that it wasn't questioning but as I got older you know then I started to challenge them well why are you telling me that I have to do that as my older sister uh, uh, and so on uh, and uh, so that so that I'm, I'm learning all about you know how some of your younger behaviors uh, uh, translate into your adulthood and then in, into your working life uh, as well there's mm. lot, lots of other things uh, around um, uh, around that as well but I'm finding that fascinating and understanding about myself and why I do the things that I do when I'm uh, either receiving or leading uh, on change as well and mm. I, I think if I think about it really deeply um, some of my resilience actually comes from the kind of childhood that I had where I grew up and um, uh, how, how I was the the, the fifth sibling um, uh, and some of the things I got away with as well as the fifth <laughs> sibling as well so <laughs> yeah um yeah and i'm i'm intrigued about um the the your your ability to recognize your own um resistance to change and then think about well how do you handle that differently does that help you also having that understanding of recognizing that some of these behaviors are ingrained in us do, do you yeah. think that helps you um support other people who are perhaps more resistant to change because you know one of the things I always say is nobody's resistant because they're a bad person mm -hmm. they're resistant because they're uncomfortable mm -hmm. with stepping into the change and perhaps don't know how to do it in another way does that does understanding that help you I, support I, other people through it absolutely because I, I help it builds empathy mm. so understanding how these things make you feel um, uh, and then knowing that you've got to do something which might make somebody feel uh, similar or uh, uncertain, unsure, worried, anxious, uh, etc. If you haven't got that empathy as you're sort of going through uh, leading change, I think you really have to question about whether you know, uh, you should be doing, are you doing it in the right way? Or do you need somebody around you to support you who can provide that um, uh, that side of it as well? Mm. Um, and, and I think it's really important to, everybody responds differently to change. I think I would say that I quite thrive on it um, because, uh, you know, if, if I do some, the same thing for, for two years, I'm thinking, well, what, I need to do something new now. So mm -hmm. I, I think I've always accepted change as a positive way of, um, 
uh, just progressing or, or, or doing things different and keeping really interested in the work that I'm doing. Some people are very different, you know, they don't like change, they like the routine, they don't want to do anything different. Uh, so when uh, a change, you know, a, a change comes forward that they are part of, um, uh, you know, it's a very uncomfortable and anxious period for them as well. And it's really about how you best support those individuals uh, as you're going through that change. And again, this comes back to that adaptability of mm. what your normal uh, way of doing things might be. You have to adapt your style in order to sort of support and facilitate uh, somebody else accepting change. Now, whether they fully accept it uh, and to get them back into that comfortable space where they've got a new routine and uh, they can suddenly get back into the into what they uh, what they uh, enjoy doing as well mm. so it, it, it's recognizing that and you know I work in large organizations uh, hundreds of people and um, everybody is different mm. um, so uh, I, I think it is again just just that adaptability and making sure that you are uh, really empathetic with the people that you're making these changes to and I think there's something really really important here isn't there's is that that balance between um the, the execution of the change from a practical results point of view of we need to change X into Y, but also the balance of how do we bring people with us and engage them and have empathy for the resistance rather than frustration with the resistance. Yeah. Because um, what, you know, one of the things, one of the questions I get asked on almost a daily basis from leaders is how do I get people what I, to do what I need them to do? And yes, <laughs> and, which I think, which is an age old problem as a, as a leader is how do you get people to do what you want them to do? But it's also recognizing that actually what they want from us might be different from what we want from them. And it's having the ability to be curious and have the empathy, but not losing sight of what is it we're trying to achieve? Because, you know, when you're executing a strategic plan for the Commonwealth Games, that's got to be executed whether people yeah. come with you or not. So yeah. there's, you know, empathy has its place, but then also the results are also required. So it's a really delicate balance. How, um, I know you've got some, you, you know, you've got a strategic plan and you've got lots coming up. Do you, let, let's just turn to the future a bit and, and look at what are some of the challenges that are coming for you for transport for West Midlands, what, what what's coming up, and how do you balance that empathy and results? Well, we, we we've got so twenty twenty three. I think is a uh, bumper year of change for us in the transport world. Um, we are refreshing our statutory transport plan, so it has this long term vision about how do we decarbonise the network, how do we achieve behaviour change, um, how do we get people travelling more sustainably uh, where they need to, how do we re reduce the demand for travel? Uh, you know, COVID did us a favour really in terms of you know people now know it's quite easy to work from home, but not everybody can work from home. So we've got all of this grand uh, long term plan, which is all part of national, regional, local strategy. Uh, in order to make sure that we've got things like clean air, access to schools, employment and so on. Uh, and we're also facilitating a, a growing population, new housing uh, 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 with that connectivity to jobs, services and, and leisure pursuits as well. So that, that's that's the big grand plan. Um, um, but we're also doing it. We've still got uh, some of the, the, the COVID uh, impacts on our transport system. 
um, you know, with uh, all of the rail industrial action that we've been seeing, uh, mm. we haven't got train services back where they should be. Uh, so there is reduced capacity on rail. Uh, we've had a similar experience on our tram network where we've had uh, uh, the drivers have been in dispute. We've also got problems with some of the infrastructure. So we've had a bit of outage as part of that. So uh, it's not running to full service at the moment. So that's not as good as it should be. Uh, and then we've seen uh, lots of driver shortages on our bus network as well. Um, and um, we're probably seeing the biggest change in the bus network since the 80s when deregulation came in so we've got we've got this real aspiration to you know get people to change their behavior um, and get them to use public transport but i've got a public transport system that is not working as best it should be so i'm i'm referring to 2023 as the yin and the yang uh, of what we do in 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 transport they're polar opposites and um mm. for us that is a real challenge mm. and then for me to keep the team motivated about what it is that they're doing uh, you know we still need to have that long-term vision uh, things will at some point get to a new normal um, uh, and uh, you know society uh, will still need to do all the things that it needs to do um, uh, and we still need to make our investments uh, for the long term in new infrastructure and new services. Um, but we have to manage these short term pressures that we're seeing as well. So for me to be able to sort of uh, lead the team uh, uh, in this yin and yang year, I, I, I think is going to be absolutely crucial. Uh, and because we're making some changes internally with how the team is structured to improve how we do things uh, and, and bring people uh, along with that as well so that we uh, with with the sort of restricted um, or limited budgets that we have uh, with uh, which inflation and all those other things are sort of making uh, the need for us to stretch them that bit further uh, slightly more difficult uh, as well I've got to make sure that people know uh, why we're here what we're doing what's our long-term plan what's our short-term plan uh, uh, around all of this so again it, it comes back to being able to adapt what you're doing keep people motivated in the short term but um, keep them also uh, holding on to what it is that we're trying to achieve in the long term one well, and the role that they play they mm. play in that and that's both your your team and also the pub, the general public as well isn't it who are the users of the service that's right and, yes and all your other stakeholders yeah all of those stakeholders <laughs> I mentioned earlier but um, I mean it is really difficult there's, there's members of the public who have no choices they they only have access to a bus they don't own a car I think like 25 percent of our population here in the West Midlands don't own a car mm. and I it's my job to make sure that they can still access all of their services and education and job opportunities as well um, so that is always very difficult we have to concentrate on uh, you know those things uh, really hard to make sure that we're servicing those people as best we can within the limited resources that we have um, uh, and just keeping people motivated in in concentrating on that and doing doing that is really important so and but also because of the problems that we're having with you know buses not turning up and trains being cancelled and other things it's it's really about how do we how do we uh, keep people informed about what's happening. Why are all these problems here? What we're doing about it to try to improve it uh, as part of uh, as part of that as well. So so keeping the public happy. And I, I think I, I've never seen so many complaint letters that come through to us and through to our councillors, um, uh, particularly around the bus network, where people are seeing some big impacts there. Mm. So um, the transport industry isn't seen as one of the most exciting industries. I don't know what the most exciting industry <laughs> is, by the way, 
Um, but but what would your advice? And 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 I'm guessing it's very male dominated as well. Mm. Um, what would your advice be to um, other diverse groups of the population? Be and to aspiring leaders who are looking for a, a career. What would your advice be to them about choosing transport as a as an option? So. Uh, transport, yes, it is. Uh, I think it's very exciting, of course. And uh, I mean, I've had the pleasure of working um, in the last 25 years. I started as a drainage technician, actually, uh, when I first uh, started my first job. Um, but I, I moved into highways and transport uh, 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 about 25 years ago. I was the only woman in the room. Uh and then I became the only female leader in the room. Mm. And now I am the only female uh, managing director of a transport authority, uh, of which there are about nine across the country. Everybody else is, is male. But I'm pleased to say there are lots and lots of other uh, females uh, now in the industry. But it is really, really varied. So people think of transport infrastructure. It's all about civil engineering. Um, but it isn't. There's a whole range of uh, things that people do. Um, so all from the operational planning, uh, all from providing the services. So whether you're a bus driver or uh, a train driver um, uh, and so on. Uh, all the project management that goes with uh, the investment um, the, the procurement side of things, um, uh, commercial negotiators, that there's a whole range uh, of different skills that are required mm -hmm. to keep a transport system working and uh, being invested in uh, as well. Uh, and then, of course, we work a lot with, um, you know, communication is a huge part of that. Um, uh, and I almost think it's, it's, it's almost, well, it is as, as important to have a huge communication programme alongside an investment programme because that is how uh, we keep people up to speed with what we're doing, why we're doing it. And um, uh, well, it's going to be slightly disruptive whilst we're doing it. So we apologise for that, but it's going to be better when, we've, when we're done. Um, so th there's a huge range of careers. And I've got two, I've got two daughters who have grown up with me as, as I've uh, progressed through my career, who think I am really boring. <laughs> and I've not managed to inspire them into, into transport. But uh, one of the things that I have been doing um, uh, with uh, the team here is we do, we do have a skill shortage and what we're seeing now in transport as well is is the new digital age uh, which is really appealing to younger people because they've grown up with new technologies they're really interested in that uh, we, we do lots of uh, uh, data um, uh, and we collect all sorts of data and do lots of uh, sort of game, gaming of uh, uh, how the transport system works lots of innovation projects from connected and autonomous vehicles e-scooters uh, as pilots and st stuff like that as well so um we've got uh, i've developed as part of our change program here to uh, help invest um in our own staff to bring these new skills that are becoming more and more of a requirement in the transport industry to make sure that we're continuing to skill them up uh, around that as well understanding what their professional aspirations are and giving them pathways uh, uh, around that um, and then try and get new people uh, into the industry, whether it's somebody who's changing a career midway through or a young person coming from school uh, or uh, university uh, into the system as well. And just trying to expose them to some of the opportunities uh, that uh, working in transport, which is very varied, has. Uh, and then, of course, using that as a way of, uh, you know, bringing more women in, uh, making sure that we've got really good diversity, uh, ethnic minority groups represented uh, as well. So that we, uh, we've got a whole good representation of people within our teams that 
also reflective of the communities that we serve as well because mm -hmm. uh, that's really important because uh, what I might understand about something somebody else will have a different view because they understand that community better than me and that's mm. really important to be able to bring that in as well so that skills academy that we've been um uh, we've put in place will help me invest here uh, in the people that work for me at tfwm uh, and also with our partners as well it's not just about tfwm uh, uh, but also uh, attract those new people into uh, this industry and i they can be with me for two years and move on as long as they come into the industry i'm really happy with that and you've certainly sold it to me. I think if I, was, <laughs> if I was looking for a career change, I think it sounds really exciting. This sounds like there's lots of opportunities, there's lots of change, there's lots of innovation. So, uh, so you've yeah. certainly sold it to me. I, so, I quite, yeah. quite often, I have I get to wear high vis uh, clothes and uh, hard hats as well. So uh, I, I quite enjoy that and uh, get taken around some of the sites. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Well, look, and thank you so much for your time. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, thank you, Jude. It's been really enjoyable. Anne has certainly sold the transport industry to me, making it sound exciting with change, innovation, diversity, technology, people and variety at its core. It's a reminder that when we're curious and passionate about change, it's much easier to inspire and be inspired. Anne talks about the need to be clear about the purpose behind change in order to help people navigate the emotions and uncertainty with curiosity. And I wonder if some of the most inspire, uninspiring things we have to do could actually be more motivating by changing how we approach them. What's the purpose of the change you're experiencing? And how do you use that purpose to motivate you and others? That's it for this podcast. I was your host, Jude Jennison, founder of Leaders by Nature, a leadership and team development company specialising in non-verbal behavioural change in leaders and teams. You can find out more about how I help leaders and teams communicate more effectively through change on my website, judejennison.com, or connect with me on LinkedIn. For now, keep leading, and I'll be back soon with another interview on Leading Through Uncertainty.